The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, our 41st president, he was destined for a life of public service from the time he was born. World War II pilot, U.S. congressman, ambassador, CIA director, and after eight years as the number two man in the White House, he earned his shot as president. His lifetime was spent defending, representing, and leading the United States through challenges foreign and domestic. We're talking about 41's All-American Life, and who just might be the nation's most successful one-term president. George Herbert Walker Bush, next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunt with the National Museum of American Presidents. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we'll open the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. Our guest expert today knows just about everything there is to know about George H.W. Bush. Dr. Jeffrey Engel is a professor of history and director of the Center for Presidential History located at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. He's written or edited a couple dozen history books, including some on the very subject of today's podcast. Welcome to American POTUS, and thanks for sharing some insight into the man known as 41. Well, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation quite a bit. So, Jeff, before we get into Bush specifically, I want to get your opinion on why the history of the presidency is so important. You know, the history of the presidency was always important, but it's become even more so uh, over the last several years as national attention has really focused almost exclusively on the president as a a major government leader. Um, You know, really funny to look back on the way the Constitution's founders and architects conceived of the presidency. They used the word chief executive for a reason. They wanted the president just to execute Congress's will. There's a reason that Congress is Article One in the Constitution. And we've not done that since. We've, over the course of the 19th century, then over the course of the 20th century in particular, and on into the 21st, we've seen presidential power accrue almost unchecked in many ways. So therefore, in answer to your question, the reason why I think it's important to study the presidency is that the presidency basically is the country at this point, certainly from a foreign policy standpoint, which is my background. But also, at, at this point, there is only one nationally elected leader in the country, and there's only one national focus for uh, America, uh, and that's the president, whether it's uh, Democrat, Republican, or who knows what comes next. And, and Jeff, don't, don't you think sometimes so that does go in cycles? So you look at the 19th century, and you certainly see an expansion of presidential powers with Lincoln during the Civil War, and then you see almost a reaction to that. Uh, so the kind of the growth of the imperial presidency and the, and the pushback from the legislative branch in particular seems to be somewhat of a theme over the years. I, I can agree with you in that there is a pushback against presidential authority, especially after times of the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, after World War One, there was a great pushback against the Wilson successes. Um, remember, Wilson comes from the political left, yet was in favor of alien and sedition acts and censorship uh, of anything, any criticism during his, of himself during the war. Um, after World War II, obviously, there's a pushback against the regulatory state. And after Vietnam, there's a pushback against presidential executive 
action. However, having said all that, I think those pushbacks never take back as much as the presidents have approved. Mm. So even though I can see the curve flatten, if you will, to use a term from our 2020 lives, this mm-hmm. overall trend of the curve of presidential uh, and executive power, I think, is clearly on the upswing. And I see no reason why it's ever going to retreat below earlier levels. Let's talk about 41 specifically now, and I kind of want to cover his pre-presidency, his presidency, and his post-presidency, because it's like three major phases of his service to the country. Uh, Talking about his pre-presidency, like his bio of of his father, W says that H.W. idolized his father, Prescott. Can you tell us more about that relationship a little bit? Prescott embodied everything that H.W. wanted to be, in the sense that he was a big man, physically and in the community. Um, he was successful in business. He was well-esteemed uh, by his community and then chose to give back to his community. He chose to spend time as a senator and actually had spent quite a bit of time at lower levels in Connecticut politics before that. Interesting thing about Prescott, uh, he actually became Dwight Eisenhower's favorite golfing buddy. The reason is really important. It wasn't that he was such a great golfer. It was because Prescott was so competitive, as everyone in the Bush family is, that he was one of the only pe- few people that Eisenhower could find that would not just let him have a victory all the time. Most people let the president have that mulligan, not Prescott Bush. And I think that's another trait that carries over to his, his entire family, but to H.W. in particular, this notion that competitiveness in good spirit, and certainly with good sportsmanship, but competitiveness is really quite key to, in essence, key to a man's place in the world. I always thought it was interesting with H.W. and that family ethic of competitiveness combined with the humility. So it's not something then you compete and gloat, uh, but you maintain that that humility, but you still want to win when you go into whatever you're doing. Yeah, and we also, I think that's a great point. Also, H.W. Uh, had a little bit of a frantic nature, which I think, you know, we, we think of him, rightly so, as a, a, an East Coast Yankee patrician, which doesn't necessarily lend itself to frenetic activity, yet it did in his case. Uh, one good example of this is that he, when he was just with his family or with close friends, they would play bush golf, which essentially was, you know, let's get in 18 holes in 45 minutes. Yeah, you, know, you don't stop, you don't talk, you keep hitting the ball. And, you know, that way you can say, I've done my jog and my golf in under an hour. Uh, <laughs> and so that, that really is, is, is unlike how we normally consider people who were in his case, born into the 1%, as we would say today. Therefore, at the top of society, we don't usually think of them moving much. That's that's the whole point of being that rich, right? Is that you have comfort and you have leisure and you won't associate that with activity. In Bush's case, activity was essential to everything he was. And really the the first milestone, if you will, of his service to his country was signing up for World War II to be a Navy pilot. Yeah. And again, that tells us something really interesting about his family dynamics because Prescott was, the father, of course, was very much against H.W. signing up. Not that he was against him signing up for the war, but this is in the spring of 1942. There's a sense that the war, frankly, unfortunately, is not going to be a quick one. Therefore, when H.W. and all of his comrades graduating from high school decided they were all going to join up on that, most of their fathers said, you know, relax, go to college first, you know, get a couple of years seasoning. In fact, when George H.W. Bush did not take his father Prescott's advice to not join up immediately. They called in the big gun. They, they called in the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, who happened to be a close personal friend. Again, that gives a sense of where these people are in the social hierarchy. And Stimson advised this Bush personally and his entire graduating class 
of people from you know one of the nation's top prep schools that they should go to college first. Maybe not for four years, but for two years. Get a little seasoning, he said, because the expectation, of course, is that they were all going to be officers. HW, again, because of his kinetic nature, had no interest whatsoever in putting anything off and joined up basically the first day he could. And I know we, we've uh, many of us have seen those that video of, of uh, HW being rescued after he was shot down. I know that that incident continued, that, that stayed with him all of his life, did it not? It did. That was September 2nd, 1944. He was shot down on a bombing mission over the island of Chichijima. It, the short story to this, though it's critical, is you know, his plane was hit. He managed to keep the plane level and complete the bombing run and then turned the plane out to sea, told his comrades, there were two other crewmen with him in that three-person bomber, told his comrades to bail out and gave them time to do so and then bailed out himself. Unfortunately, he was the only one of the three that survived. And he has said, though not to me, I'll come back to that in a second, he has said that uh, he thought about them every day of his life. And, you know, he used them as both inspiration, but also that you know, recognition that war is terrible, you know, and, and ran them. One of the people who was his crewman that day was not a normal crewman. Uh, it was actually a friend of his brother's from Yale who was with a visiting delegation from the Navy inspection team, whatever, who happened to be on the aircraft carrier that day, knew George, and said, hey, George, I've always wanted to go on a combat run. Can I go with you? That was clearly a poor choice uh, on his part. So Bush never really got over that. But I will say, it's also critically something that he, like so many of his generation, internalized and didn't speak about except on very, very rare occasions. And Mm -hmm. I said, certainly not to me. I tried once. He and I were on a plane together, and I, I said, boy, this is a great moment for me to ask about hope. Flight. You know, he's a foreign pilot. And I tried to get him to talk about it, and I'll never forget. He looked at me and handed me a cookie, and he said, What else you got? And the clear implication was, I'm not talking to somebody one third of my age about this experience. So everything that we know about his sort of internal wrestling and wrangling with this experience is from the few occasions where he did open up to people of his own generation, many times without a tape recorder on. So they had to write it down, write it down later. And, and of course, one of the, the more positive aspects of his life around the same time was meeting Barbara. Yes. And, and that was really a, a, a match made in match made in Greenwich, uh, if you will, <laughs> uh, in, the, in the sense that he comes from a very prominent family of, from both sides. The Walkers and the Bushes were very prominent. The Walker Cup in golf, for example, is named for one of his relatives, I think a grandfather, if I'm not mistaken. And so did who did Barbara Bush. She came from Barbara Pierce. You know, she's a relative of Franklin Pierce, former president. And, of course, she comes from a well-to-do family as well. So there's no doubt that they fell immediately in love, you know, as so many people did during World War II. You know, had a very short courtship, a long period of letter writing, and then a quick marriage during a, during a break in his training in 1945. But that being said, it also was essentially the right kind of person for each of them to marry. So you get the sense that even though it was a, a quick and distant wartime courtship, that their families would have approved. This is the, the right type of thing for their station in life. And, and breaking our chronology a bit, looking forward from there, what do you think, how would you summarize her impact on George throughout his, his life, his political career? She was a rock in a variety of ways for him. He was frenetic in his work life and then in his political life. And what that translates to for a, a person with a large family, he had you know, multiple kids, is basically leaving everything to her. On the home front, George W. Bush, obviously 43rd president, has often said that he has his father's eyes and his mother's mouth because she can be a little tartar and acerbic than the father. 
But I think more important than that, when I look at the family dynamic, I see a lot more of her in George W. Bush than I do of H.W. And my rationale for that is that during most of W.'s formative years, his father was on the road as an oil salesman and then as a politician. He was clearly the, the father figure in the life. He was clearly the, the, the pater familias of, of the entire household. But on a day-to-day level, his mother raised him, I, I would say. And she just continued to be George Bush's rock basically the entire time that, uh, of, throughout their entire life. I mean, they were married for over 70 years. But yeah. And the one interesting thing about their relationship that I would suggest, I'm a firm believer you can't be in inside anyone else's marriage. But from the outside, it certainly appeared that she, with her somewhat more acerbic tongue, was capable of being the policer of family relations and of political relations in some ways that he was not comfortable with. George Bush might be polite to you if he was upset with you, but Barbara would let you know. And that was you know, critical, I think, for a chief executive uh, to get his message across in a private, subtle way through somebody else's mouth. So many things to admire about Barbara Bush, maybe a podcast of its own down the road on yeah, American Poets. Yeah. I'm going to hide the names of who she was talking about. But I, for a while, was essentially, when I taught at the Bush School of Government in College Station at Texas A&M, for several years, I was essentially the school's de facto escort for Mrs. Bush because we, we got along, something that I guess one cannot say about everybody. And enjoyed each other's company. And I remember walking down the hall of the school at one point with her to some function or other. And the halls are filled with pictures of people from the administration. And she would look at the pictures as we're walking by and say, oh, I love that guy. Oh, George really thought we respected that guy. That guy was a jerk. Uh, <laughs> and I, I would look at her and say, I didn't ask. Like, I really didn't need to know somebody, you know, somebody <laughs> about their personal lives. So. Great. so let's talk a little about his political and government service before he became POTUS. He was kind of building his resume in a bit, right? Yes. He actually, I think, has what can easily be described as the best resume of any president, perhaps with the exception of Eisenhower, honestly, with the exception of Eisenhower or Hoover. So it tells us a little bit that pre-presidential resume doesn't always guarantee presidential success. He strikes out on his own after coming back from the war. Goes to Yale, finishes an accelerated program for returning veterans. Um, All college campuses basically at that period were completely overcrowded, so they were trying to get people through as quickly as possible. And had been offered several jobs on Wall Street and banking jobs like his father had. And he decided, no, I need to make it on my own. And he uh, loaded up the Studebaker and drove out to Texas because, as they say, that's where the money is. But this is a great period of petroleum exploration and a boom in the entire energy industry. And decided that he didn't want to just ride his father's coattails. Um, But I would say there's a critical element of this. Two things. The first is uh, he carried with him a very large investment check from his father's friends. And secondly, I think he always knew in the back of his mind that the comfortable Greenwich life was there if he ever needed it. That if things didn't work out in West Texas, he had a great fallback. So he had an adventurous spirit, but not an irrational one if you will. And he moves up the food chain in the energy field and then moves up the food chain as a politician. We're working from being a county Republican chairman, basically at every other level of executive government, federal government you can think of, before ultimately, obviously, becoming vice president for eight years before his own presidency. Jeff, Jeff, how do you explain, you see uh, a lot of people after Watergate kind of souring on the political system, and, and Bush seems to retain this kind of optimism. 
despite being right in the middle of one of the worst messes in American history. How did he maintain that that kind of belief and that optimism? You know, the first thing he did was leave. Uh, and I mean that quite explicitly. After he was RNC chair, he actually was you know, basically runner-up to be vice president for Gerald Ford. But interestingly enough, when Ford canvassed Washington due to the complexities of the situation, he had essentially to select his own vice president that had to be approved by Congress. When, he, when Ford canvassed Washington, everyone said, well, you know, Bush is my number two choice, which is to say nobody was particularly thrilled by him, but everybody accepted him. Obviously, Ford picked someone else and gave Bush the opportunity to you know, get a reward for being RNC chair. And Bush said, you know, I really like that diplomacy thing. Uh, I'd really like to be an ambassador. And Ford said, well, great. I, you have done such a good job. I'm going to give you one of my two top positions of all. Uh, you can either be ambassador to France or ambassador to Britain. Plum post, to be sure. And George Bush said, actually, I'd rather go to China for a variety of reasons. Officially, it was because he thought China was the place of the future. He wanted to get a sense of Asia at this particular moment in time. Also, China was remarkably far away, as he used to say in his diary at the time, my phone never rang, which was wonderful. And he used that sabbatical to get away and to maintain his, his faith in America, which had been shaken, much like everybody else's, because Vietnam, of course, is going on at the very same time. But the other reason why he chose, I think it's clear, the other reason why he chose China is because it was a lot cheaper than England or, or France. In both of those situations, the ambassador is expected to supplement the social budget for the embassy because it's never going to be enough. That's why you always see those ambassadors being multimillionaires, if not billionaires, as they are today. And China was dirt cheap. And he wrote in his diary, I still have four kids to put through college. You know, so <laughs> he loved the fact that you know the, the caviar was cheap and the martinis were cheap over in Beijing. I can tell all of our listeners that Jeff has, has written or edited uh, so many great books and when the world seemed new and so many others. But I first heard of Jeff Engel uh, when I read the China diary of George H.W. Bush that Jeff edited. And that's a wonderful read. And Jeff, you did a great job with that. That was a fun project. We had Bush's actual diary, sort of. <laughs> I have to be very specific about how I say this as a historian to let your you know, users or listeners, excuse me, behind the curtain a little bit. George Bush never wrote his own diary. He dictated it. And those dictations were subsequently transcribed several years later by his office back in Houston by people who didn't speak Chinese, by the way, neither did George Bush, which means, and the original tapes were lost, which means we have transcripts that are basically true, but with a lot of errors, especially names and places. And so one of the fascinating, head-scratching, head-banging against the wall experiences of writing that diary was just trying to figure out sometimes who the heck is he talking about? Who is he talking to? And I think we basically identified just about everybody in the diary. Yeah, it's it's a wonderful read. And really, his personality shines through in those pages. You see that you're dealing with not only a really intelligent man, but a dedicated and, and just a good good human being. I think that's right. I, I think that's fundamental to appreciate about his, his personality, that he was a genuinely good-hearted person. The next step in his career was being CIA director, which some people would might consider a career killer. Is that where the loyalty his, comes his, in? Yeah, his time as CIA director was explicitly designed to be a career killer because the person who orchestrated that particular reorganization of the Ford cabinet was Don Rumsfeld, who had been Ford's chief of staff. Of course, his loyal deputy was a young man from Wyoming named Dick Cheney. And they orchestrated a move, basically of chess pieces of people throughout the administration in order to make Rumsfeld continue to be viable for a political future, but also in many ways to try to sabotage Bush. This was not the purpose of the organization, but they saw it as an opportunity. 
because especially in the wake of Watergate, in the wake of the church Senate, the Senate church investigations, committee investigations into the intelligence community's illegalities and immoralities uh, over the previous generation, the CIA was considered a dead end. Nobody had ever come back from the CIA to have a political career because, you know, it is the era of spy, the place of spycraft, and that is not a place that sort of goes hand in hand with America's conception of political viability. So Bush did not want to take the job, but as he always said, if the president asks, you say yes. And in fact, he would say, as my father used to say, if the president asks, you say yes. Uh, he also was ready to come back from China at that point. And he clearly liked the job. He liked it enough that he petitioned Jimmy Carter in 1976-77 to stay on as a CIA director. Carter had no interest in that whatsoever. <laughs> but at the very least, Bush was willing to stay on because he enjoyed the experience of, of working at the agency. And I think that actually, if I may, gives a real insight into his character because you know, he knew nothing about the intelligence community, just as he had known nothing about diplomacy, just as he had known nothing about China before he began any of those adventures. But in each case, he essentially was brought into a wounded institution to head up its leadership in order to reinstall competent people in the institution. He famously, at the CIA, walked in on the first day and said, okay, what are they trying to do to us? And the fact that he used the term us made it clear to everyone around him that he considered himself part of the organization and not this outsider brought in. Uh, and he does this time and again over his career. He is essentially a, a brilliantly effective confidence builder within bureaucracies. In, in doing that, obviously boosting the morale of the employees and, and, and putting them on the right path, was there anything structural that he did in the CIA? What, what specific reforms can you point back and say H.W. did at the CIA to put it back on the right course? That we know of. That right. we know of, yes. And maybe that's yeah. also... <laughs> I can't, I really can't, I'm not allowed to discuss this. Um, <laughs> he, you know, none come to mind. And yet, and yet, he was CIA director for less than two years yeah. and was they subsequently named the entire building after him. Yeah. It's now the George H.W. Bush building at the CIA. And I think that tells us just how beloved he was for the difficult role that he took on. You know, coming into the agency when nobody in their right mind would take that job. And he took it with a gusto to try to defend an institution that was daily being attacked in the press. Really made the agency recognize that it was still valued and that despite being criticized, and I have to say, criticized rightly so on many, on many fronts, that the bulk of the people there were still loyal government workers and public servants and needed to be respected as such. And it, that does go back to your point, though, about CIA being not really good for your political aspirations because it's not like you could leave and say, here are the 10 things I did at the CIA that were really successful. And this is another reason why you should elect me to office. Exactly, exactly. And I think there's a recognition that this intelligence has to be a dirty business from time to time. And we don't like to think of our politicians having that much dirt on their hands. So next up for him, running for president, didn't go as he had hoped, but he wound up being the vice presidential pick. Talk about that controversial pick. He wasn't the first choice for Reagan. No, he was the last man standing, if you will, against Ronald Reagan uh, in the primary. Bush actually won the Iowa caucus, basically by shaking every hand in Iowa he could find. And Reagan, who was a front-running contender at that time, took, as contenders often do, the position that the less I say, the better, uh, and didn't show up much at all in Iowa. Therefore, Bush was able to take it, to, to Reagan's great surprise. And Bush gave the best critique, I would argue, of Ronald Reagan, one which I actually think is still accurate, 
not only the term that we still use, but it's actually accurate. He called Reagan's supply-side economics voodoo economics to say you know, it works nice on paper and it works nice as an incantation, but it's not reality. Now, what's interesting about that is that he was very explicit and clear on the campaign trail that Reagan's economic policies were voodoo. The moment he became Reagan's vice president, he suddenly loved supply-side economics and was the most loyal vice president perhaps in American history, following everything that Reagan said to a T and only offering any critique, such as it was, privately and, and behind the scenes. How he got to be vice president, again, is really interesting because Ronald Reagan got the nomination in 1980 and was considered a real maverick candidate. I think we actually forget in many ways how, how much Reagan was on the political fringe uh, when he won the presidency. Essentially, his, his part of the party had taken over the Republican Party, with the language that was used at the time. The Barry Goldwater types, who had been seemingly dead in 1964 after his defeat to Lyndon Johnson, had resurged with a vengeance. And so there was a real desire within the party and within the country to find someone to temper this man, this Ronald Reagan. And they turned to Gerald Ford first, who, of course, had just been defeated in the last election, and said, would you be interested in becoming co-president, essentially. And Ford first rebuffed the idea and then started to warm to it. And actually, Henry Kissinger and Dick Cheney and others had long negotiations over whether or not they could find some way for Ford to come in and actually be in charge of foreign policy while Reagan was in charge of domestic policy. Ultimately, after some really intense debates going over the course of several days, they realized it wasn't going to work. You know, I like to say that when somebody runs into the room and says, Mr. President, we have a crisis, you only want one person saying yes. And that would not work with Ford. So when, at the convention already, Reagan is left without a vice president, again, they canvass people and say, well, you know, nobody really dislikes George Bush. He's loyal, he's true, he's a good party man, and nobody dislikes him. Nobody necessarily was the most enthusiastic about him, but he was always everybody's faithful number two and actually served that role very well for Reagan. And when Reagan offered him the job, you know, probably broke the speed of sound with Bush replying, yes. Can you can you talk about how that relationship developed during the administration? That's I'm going to answer that question on a, on a couple of levels because <laughs> I'm of the opinion that no relationship developed with Ronald Reagan at all over the, for anyone. Ronald Reagan is the greatest cipher we have as a president in in fascinating and disturbing ways. In that Ronald Reagan and I'm certainly not the only historian to say this. Ronald Reagan had no friends really. He had incredible amounts of compatriots and comrades, but nobody that he ever opened himself up to, including Nancy Reagan. Nancy Reagan used to say, I'm not sure I really understand this guy. And therefore, Reagan was nice and congenial to everyone, but never allowed anyone seriously into his inner psyche, if you will, Bush included. So George Bush was that faithful vice president. They dined once a week for the entire eight years, Bush offered his advice quietly and never, never, never once disagreed with the president in public. It's actually quite remarkable. Even though we know he had some severe policy disagreements with Reagan, especially vis-a-vis the end of the Cold War. He thought Reagan was being way too soft and compromising with Mikhail Gorbachev. But he never said that out loud, never said that in public. And therefore, Ronald Reagan and George Bush became very, very good political associates. But again, to reinforce the idea that Reagan did not let anyone in his inner circle. Over the eight years that the Bushes were vice president and, this, and second uh, and second lady, I guess, they never once were invited into the residence of the White House. Everything, you know, the, the Reagans kept their inner sanctum free from people. And in fact, when George Bush takes over as president, obviously after Reagan in 1989, and begins to have cocktail parties for the staff in the residence, the White House staff are shocked. 
because they say we, we haven't done that in almost a decade. You know, we've never allowed anybody upstairs. But the Bushes were much more open people to those around him than, than the Reagans were. So finally, he was the first VP to be elected POTUS immediately after the vice presidency in 152 years. Why did that happen for him? What was so special about him? Well, he had the very good fortune of choosing his opponent well, you know, which, by the way, I would say the exact same thing about Barack Obama and Donald Trump, that perhaps sometimes the key to victory is to make is to run against somebody who's worse. And Mike Dukakis was really an open target in 1988 for a lot of the cultural and political trends that were sweeping through the country. It was the end of the 1980s Reagan era, uh, which means it was the end of sort of a hyper-patriotic, flag-waving era in American politics. In fact, the flag itself became one of the key issues in the election because Mike Dukakis, being a card-carrying member of the ACLU, said very clearly the Supreme Court has said it is not a violation of your First Amendment rights to burn the flag, or that your, your First Amendment rights allow you to burn the flag if you so choose. And I will stand up for those First Amendment rights. George Bush and those of Brazil took that as an opportunity to say, much as the President Trump is saying today, take that legal and political stance and use it to question his patriotism and question his love of country. Bush campaigned hard for an amendment in favor of banning the burning of the flag, making that an illegal act. I think largely knowing there was no way it was ever going to pass and that it was also unconstitutional, but it was hugely good politics. Bush is able to essentially ride Reagan's coattails and use a good opponent. And thirdly, he is able to provide stability in a country that is less stable than we recall. The 1980s were a time of extraordinary economic strife, but more importantly, Within the prosperity of the 80s, there also was a tremendous amount of income inequality, which I would argue had begun in the 70s and continues, obviously, to this day. But the real major questions of the era were, what kind of America are we going to have now that the world post-World War II America appears to finally be sort of running its natural life course? And what is the oncoming 21st century going to mean? And Bush didn't necessarily offer new, exciting ideas for either of those questions, but he also was very comforting to the country. Again, it's, and, I, and I have extraordinary respect for the man. I have lots of places where I would criticize his policies, but I have extraordinary respect for the man. But I do have to stress, there's not a whole lot of segments in the Republican Party or in the country that rallies enthusiastically to George Bush. And I will tell our listeners, I've known Jeff for many years, and we have some conflicting views, I would say, on Ronald Reagan. I would say, and, and Jeff, you can uh, tell me I'm wrong on this, that part of the reason H.W. Bush gets elected president is people liked what they saw in the Reagan presidency and wanted to continue that. I would say that's a nice fantasy you've got there, Alan. <laughs> uh, that actually actually doesn't comport with the facts. Let me give you a couple of examples. Please, um, please. When asked the question, is the country going in the right direction, by the end of the Reagan administration, more Americans thought no than yes. Also, when Reagan won in 1984 in a massive landslide, he too had the good fortune of choosing a candidate uh, or having a candidate for him who had flaws. Uh, Walter Mondale, great public servant, not a wonderful national campaigner. And Walter Mondale, who's trying to keep together essentially the 1960s Democratic coalition, which had just withered by that time. And when asked, this is really key, when asked in exit polls, two-thirds of the people who voted for Ronald Reagan, when asked to give a letter grade for the president, gave him a grade of C or lower. Essentially, what that tells me is in 1984, Reagan won, as is so often the case, because he was considered the known quantity and the lesser of two evils, uh, two evils or, or at least the lesser of two enthusiasms. 
Uh, and I don't think that changes after Iran Contra in any way, shape, or form. But remember also in 84, and I'll, I'll leave it at this, we could have a whole episode, uh, Jeffrey, and, and, and talking about Mr. Reagan. how you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but remember in 84, the economy is just starting to turn around thanks to the very enlightened policies of Ronald Reagan. So at that point, you can see that people are still stinging from the, the end of the recession, but the next four years, generally that economy takes off. Well, I would argue correctly that uh, <laughs> the economy had had rebounded by late 83 mm-hmm. from the recession that Ronald Reagan helped exacerbate, the worst recession, honestly, since the Great Depression at that point um, in terms of unemployment numbers, in terms of inflation, et cetera. And the Federal Reserve trying to whip inflation did some damage to the economy's robustness. But so too, frankly, did a lot of Reagan's policies of his 1981 omnibus bill which you know, essentially um, was Reaganomics on steroids. You know, cut, cut taxes, cut social programs. You know, this is the tax cut that declares ketchup a vegetable famously for school children, which Alan Greenspan said was an unchristian budget. And Congress steps back in after 82, 83 to impose, I would think, fiscal and, and financial sanity to the budget-making process, which enabled the natural sign curve of the uh, economy to speed back up again. We'll we'll we'll, uh, we'll agree to disagree. No, I don't think we will. But you can. <laughs> All right, you two go back to your corners. All right, come on. <laughs> we've been having this, we've been having this fight for, for more than ten, I guess, ten years now. Yeah, right? that's right. So I want to wrap up this segment on the pre-presidency with a little this or that question for both of you. So what what do you think influenced him most as a president? Family or his previous government jobs? Jeff, you go first. Family or his previous government jobs? What influenced him the most as president? You know, that's a brilliant question because I think it's actually 50-50. And I'm not just trying to punt on that. It really is critical to know that the sense of public service and genuine old-fashioned noblesse oblige, that those to whom the society had given much, had a responsibility to give back even more, infused everything in his life and infused the Bush family. It should be stressed that their sense of noblesse oblige was very clear that they were part of the noblesse and the system worked when they were in charge. They're, they they and their type of, of country club Republicans, especially. So he really believed strongly in public service and in public duty and that the president's job is to be the president of all the people, not just those who voted for him. At the same time, he was extraordinarily experienced in the government. There's basically no issue that could come up in the, in politics that he had not thought about or knew who to turn to who was an expert and was willing to listen. And he really was willing to listen. He very famously had what they called scheduled train wrecks in the Oval Office, which was the administration's internal term for when George Bush would call in people from his administration who disagreed on a key issue and let them argue the issue in front of him because he wanted to see not only the policy papers, he wanted to see how these people thought and wanted to open, look at questions openly and decide for himself, but only by after hearing people who genuinely understood the issue and genuinely disagreed with conviction and remarkably different than Ronald Reagan, among others. And uh, I think, therefore, his experience combined with his values are are what makes his presidency. This time, I have to agree with Jeff. And I will say, uh, in preparation for today's podcast, I look back at some of the letters H.W. had written that were gathered in all, All My Best, there was a great one from 78. He's writing, writing a friend. And at the very end of that, H.W. says, I have been blessed by birth, by experience, by training, and I have friends, loyal, close friends, men of quality. So 
he's recognizing all this has gone together to make him into the person he is. Yeah, I'm actually going to steal that for something I'm writing now. I forgot about that letter, so thank you, Alan. He, uh, remember, he's one of those politicians that initially, especially when he thinks about running, first thinks about running for president, he has trouble answering the question, why do you want to be president? And his answer at first is, well, I have a lot of friends. You know, I would be the right kind of person to lead the country, which I think he both was and believed. He didn't have an agenda, necessarily, except that, that he should be responsible. A quick break just to say we'd really like to see your comments or questions about this episode or ideas for future episodes. On Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, just search American POTUS and we'll pop right up there in the search results. And if you like what you're hearing, we would be most grateful if you could spread the word and recommend the podcast to your friends, family, neighbors, or coworkers. George Bush finally takes the White House. He becomes POTUS 41. Who was on his team? Who were his most trusted advisors? His most trusted presidential advisors were people who were within his friends category, people who had been with him for a long time, and he had loyalty with them who he knew could, he could expect their loyalty. Most top of the list was James Baker, his secretary of state. James Baker, who had been his tennis partner, literally, down at the club in Houston back in the 1960s. The two of them could not possibly be closer. You know, they, they're godchildren, I mean, they're each of those godparents and their kids. And Baker, in particular, as Secretary of State, used to say that there was an incredible asset to be that personally close to the president because no one ever was going to get between them. You know, it's, it's not like anybody bureaucratically was ever going to have a better line. They kind of have a big brother or little brother relationship in some ways. And every now and then, of course, like all siblings, they would staff. And H.W. more than once said, if you're so smart, how come I'm president? <laughs> kind of put him in his place a little bit, as you can see a brother's doing. He also brought with him Brent Scowcroft on the foreign policy front, who had worked with him in the Ford administration. Brent Scowcroft, who was the only man to be national security advisor twice. Brent Scowcroft, who really was the quiet voice within the administration of sanity and stability. Because Scowcroft, recall, had been the one who essentially authored the Tower Report, Senator, Senator John Tower, which was the investigation into Iran-Contra. And the Tower Report's conclusion, in many ways, was that Reagan had let his NSC run out of control. And therefore, the entire purpose of Grant Scowcroft was to put it back on stable footing, which meant date your memos, put things in the right office box, make sure that everybody's communicated with and shows up at the same meeting at the same time. Just really simple, but yet difficult things. And, you know, he surrounded himself, George Bush did, with people of that ilk, people who really understood how the government worked and also understood that government was public service and that things need to be in the open more often than not. You know, uh, Jeff, since H.W. had been vice president, can we talk for a moment about Dan Quell, the choice of Quell? What role he gave Quayle? Can you explain that to us? You know, I think Dan Quayle, history is not going to look kindly on Dan Quayle, and it's not his fault because he was raised to a position which he did not have the natural ability and aptitude for. And I think one of the reasons for that is that George Bush looked at Dan Quayle in 1988, who nobody had really been talking about necessarily as the obvious vice president, and Bush saw himself in some ways, you know, a young man from a good family who was well-educated, who was energetic, who was moving up the chain in politics and, you know, so could bring a little bit more energy back into Washington that needed it. And I think he discovered ultimately that 
Dan Quayle was not George Bush. And Dan Quayle's responsibilities, I wouldn't say they diminished over the course of the Bush presidency, but they never increased. Bush never looked at Quayle and said, yes, that's the person I need to put my most valued problems in front of, as Kennedy did for Lyndon Johnson or as Barack Obama did for Joe Biden. Yes, granted, there's a changing nature of the vice presidency itself that has become a more important figure over the last generation. But Dan Quayle was a political liability as much as anything else, to be honest. He was mis- he often misspoke in embarrassing ways, which is not an unusual thing for politicians. But once you get a reputation for that, people pick up on it all the time. And there was a serious discussion in 92 over whether or not Bush should choose someone else to join the ticket and to dump Quayle. Quayle's people did a great job of getting this discussion into the press, which meant the president had to deny it, which essentially ties his hands. So they sort of won that Machiavellian political round. But the fact that there was an open discussion was really critical, that after four years of Dan Quayle being president, most people who were political pundits and also political strategists in the Republican Party could really see the advantages of of finding someone else. When Bush took over as president, one of the major issues still wrapping up from the Reagan era was the Cold War. Cold War was winding down. Who do you give credit to? Some people give credit to Bush. Some give, some people give credit to Reagan. Well, first and foremost, I give credit to Mikhail Gorbachev. I think the notion that Americans ask the question as you did, which is the typical way we ask it, is extraordinarily dangerous because it suggests that we have the power to dictate other countries' policies. And in fact, I just heard our President Trump's chief armed negotiator with the Soviets, excuse me, with the Russians <laughs> today, saying, we know how to win a Cold War, we can outspend them uh, and drive them into the ground. And that was Reagan's aspiration. But I think what we need to remember is that the Soviets had reached a conclusion that they were not going to be able to keep up in the Cold War long before Reagan showed up. In the 70s, the Soviets had realized that they were falling behind and needed structural reform. And Mikhail Gorbachev was of a new generation, he was in his mid-50s, tells you a lot. And he was willing to make, he was that unusual politician who was willing not only to say we need change, but to do something about it. So everything you have to see in the context of what happens behind the Iron Curtain is more important than the Cold War than anything that ever happens in Washington or London or Paris. Having said that, Reagan was correct in his estimation of Soviet decline, which by the way, so had George Kennan been in 1946, and so were most observers uh, throughout the early 1980s. And Reagan, after very closely coming to blowing up the world several times in 1983 because of his ridiculous, harsh rhetoric against the Soviets, which importantly the Soviets believed, did an amazing job. And here I give him all the credit in the world of turning his foreign policy essentially 180 degrees towards the Soviets. Like, say what you will about Ronald Reagan. He was willing to learn and change in office, which is remarkable and to be re- lauded. And therefore was willing to meet Gorbachev as a reformer, as Gorbachev want to reform. All told, however, I think there's a fundamental flaw with seeing Reagan as responsible for the end of the Cold War beyond what I've already mentioned, which is that recall his strategy for winning the Cold War was we win, they lose. First of all, I tell my students, that's not a strategy, that's an aspiration. A strategy has to have something a little bit more meat to it. But secondly, it begs the question that I think drives the entire Bush foreign policy, which is that's great. What happens the day, next day when you wake up and that's the big loss? What does a loss for the Soviets really mean? And remember that as Bob Gates, another one of the smart advisors that George Bush brought with him, he had already been in the CIA, but Bush brought him closer into the NSC. He was deputy to Ben Stokroft. 
as Bob Gates used to remind people with his PhD in Russian history, that there was never in history a case where a great power had collapsed without an ensuing great power war. And this is also the first time that we were going to try to run this experiment with 20,000 nuclear weapons in the mix. So frequently, I think the Reagan people were overly generous with themselves for having won the Cold War when I think the real problem was, what do you do next? What do you do now? You know, say what you will about the Cold War. As John Lewis Gatta said, it might better be described as a long peace. And the stability of the Cold War is actually somewhat remarkable. Yes, tense, but stable. Having removed all the stability rods, Gorbachev, having done that, left Bush and those in power in 1989, really to scratch their heads and wonder what the next day would bring in a way that had not been the case since probably 1939. And it's no surprise that Jeff and I disagreed uh, to some extent on the role of Ronald Reagan at the end of the Cold War. Certainly, Gorbachev's role was very, very important. But I will say, Jeff in his book, When the World Seemed New, does an amazing job of talking about how H.W. Bush managed that next step of what do you do now as you see the Soviet Union essentially ceasing to exist how, how do you handle this? How do you handle this new world we're confronting? And H.W. Bush was the right man in the right place to do that. I, I think we can both agree on, on the point that he was certainly the right man at the right time. I mean, I think fundamental to my takeaway from George H.W. Bush's diplomacy is that the Cold War, the end of the Cold War, is one of the most dangerous periods in history that people don't recall as being so dangerous because he was calm. Whenever there was a crisis, his first response was, how do I not make this worse? How do I lower public anxiety? How do I keep leaders from being angry at each other and therefore lashing out? How do I not lash out? He, his entire response was, if nobody sees foreign policy happening, it must be good. Like, you know, you don't want to have to worry about how your airplane runs in the middle of a flight. You know, how, if a safe flight means nothing happens. That was Bush's approach in some ways to foreign policy as well, especially during the tumult of the end of the Cold War. Jeff, just moving to another great power that's certainly still in our minds today, and that's China. With Bush's experience in China, when he becomes president, uh, that tests his relationship with China, particularly after Tiananmen Square. Can you can you comment a bit on that? Yeah, this is actually the area where I, I, I think I'm most critical about H.W. Uh, Bush's performance. Of course, in, in understanding his performance about China, we, of course, have to remember that he was president during Tiananmen Square. By the way, I like to say that, unfortunately, sadly, the events of June 4th, 1989, when the communist forces cracked down against student protesters, transformed in global consciousness Tiananmen Square from a place to an event. And therefore, everybody understands when I say that he was president during Tiananmen Square, even though it's actually a geographic location. And Bush was obviously, like everyone else in this country, appalled at the treatment of those pro-democracy protesters. He had quietly tried to signal to China, as had basically every other country in the world, that you need to not crack down. The Chinese, of course, had a different interpretation of problems. And say what you will about the Chinese, when they saw protesters in the street they sent in the tanks. In Eastern Europe, protesters in the streets were ultimately allowed to protest until the regimes fell. And one system is still here and the other system is not. So uh, sadly, one of the lessons I think of Tiananmen Square in 1989 is that force can work, sadly. George Bush believed that personal diplomacy could work. Uh, he was a big believer that when you are a friend, as he thought he was, uh, of not just people in the country, but of Deng Xiaoping in particular, who he had met, both in China and then hosted in Houston in 1979. When you are a friend, you listen to each other and you can have influence with each other. And Bush, therefore, when things went south at Tiananmen Square, 
tried to call upon that personal friendship. He tried to place a phone call to Deng Xiaoping, and Deng refused to take the call. In fact, you can imagine the consternation that caused in the White House, because one of the things that we forget about the crisis of Tiananmen Square is that uh, not only was there a crisis on the street, there was also a crisis with the highest levels of Chinese bureaucracy. And there was a better than 50-50 chance, American analysts thought, that a civil war was going to break out between different units of the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, and different factions of Deng's government. And I think Deng was really worried about that as well. So when he decided not to take the call, that naturally led people in the White House to wonder if he was dead. Now, maybe that's why he's not taking a call, because people usually answer when the President of the United States call. And ultimately, Bush decided, uh, I think this is very wise on his part, that he needed to keep the Sino-American relationship going and not have it break entirely, as, say, we had broken with Cuba, or as we had broken with North Korea. We're having no relations whatsoever, as we had broken with China in 1949, that despite the fact that we need, of course, to sanction the Chinese and criticize the Chinese, they are going to be the leading power of the 21st century, and we better learn to, to live with them in some way. Obviously, one of the things most people remember from his presidency, the Gulf War. It was almost 30 years ago, but it's probably the most efficient one-sided war in modern times, right? He seemed to really shine putting together the global coalition, executing the conflict. I mean, his approval rating was, what, 80-some percent afterward? Yeah, it's, it's, it's remarkable. I really would argue that there has never been in American history, with perhaps the exception of Franklin Roosevelt during World War II, a four-year period that a president faced more and faced more complex yeah. problems. Yeah. So I'm tempted to say, well, you know, the Gulf, Gulf War is where Bush really shines. And then a little light goes off in the back of my head where I say, no, no, also German unification, which is going on at the exact same time, with a completely different set of uh, skills required. But Bush's ability to not defeat Saddam Hussein, because first of all, he was not necessarily wholly defeated in the way that some people might have liked, leading to subsequent problems. But Bush's ability to follow what became known as the Powell Doctrine after General Powell, who was, uh, of course, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, subsequently Secretary of State, of course, Colin Powell, for George W. Bush. Although Powell, at different times, has correctly said, actually, it should be called the Weinberger Doctrine, <laughs> because it was developed when he was also working with Captain Weinberger, who was Secretary of Defense, which was a response to Vietnam, that the lessons of Vietnam seem to be to American policymakers, don't bite off more than you can chew and don't get in the way of the military when it's chewing. And the Powell Doctrine, therefore, said three basic things. First is limit wars to political, realistic goals. Second, use overwhelming force and let the military do it. And third, get out. And that's exactly what Bush did in the, the Gulf War. He used limited goals. The goal was always, always, always simply to eject Saddam Hussein from Kuwait and do as much damage as possible to the Republican Guard with the expectation that, George, that uh, Saddam Hussein would not last long after there was really no discussion within the administration of actual regime change or going to certainly no discussion of occupation. As James Baker used to say, people would ask me all the time in the late 90s why we didn't occupy Iraq. And after 2005, nobody asked me anymore. Uh, it was just so obvious because those same problems were predicted in 1991. The second thing they did, obviously, was use overwhelming force, where she basically said to the military time and again, what do you need? And I will get it for you. And third, get out when you achieve your goal. And in many ways, the biggest obstacle that Bush faced in the Gulf War was Vietnam War and that hangover and legacy of a depressing one at that for the American public. 
And so his ability to rally the Americans to war and then have it be quick and efficient was really a, a masterful stroke of both um, diplomacy and, and politics. In contrast to the Gulf War, one element of the Bush administration we don't talk much about are the actions in Panama. Uh, that kind of gets lost in history, the sending of troops there, the capture of Noriega. What can you tell us about that action? Why did H.W. think that was the right thing to do at, at that time? Well, so let me give you the, the – that's a great question. Let me give you the, the broad outlines of the standard interpretation. Then I'm going to throw a little twist at the end. The standard interpretation is that Noriega was a scumbag drug runner of a leader. By the way, had worked closely with the CIA in the early years and much of that drug running. That's not – conspiracy theory at this point, which is a fact, and had gone off the rails and was continuing to pump drugs into the American system against American desires and was threatening to destabilize the Panama Canal Zone, which, of course, had just been handed back to the Panamanians in, 1980, in 1980 by Jimmy Carter, something that Ronald Reagan had railed against uh, during his electoral campaign. So, Therefore, Noriega is not only seen as a dictator, not only seen as a thug, not only seen as a criminal, he's a person who is threatening to disrupt the global order by shutting down the Panama Canal. Bush and others around the world made plain that he was a despicable leader and that they wanted him gone, Noriega. Noriega actually lost an election earlier in the year, but the funny thing about it was, although this has some resonance today, is that Noriega, in the wake of the election, said, there's been incredible voter fraud and those ballots were all invalid because nobody in their right mind would think that the loser would ever say that in the sense that when, when you say voter fraud, you assume the voter fraud is done on the part of the winner. turns out he was doing the voter fraud. He just hadn't done it enough, which is why he's able to stay in power despite a democratic leader uh, being elected. Ultimately though, I don't think things ever would have come to a head in Panama until the Panamanian security forces, defense forces, began harassing American troops in the canal zone. And in particular, specifically, there was one incident where uh, on the same night, uh, a young naval officer was shot and another naval officer was beaten and his wife beaten too. The young woman was sexually har- uh, harassed and assaulted, some reports suggest. I actually don't have 100% confidence in those reports. But... Bush basically saw that, and I, I like to think saw himself in that young officer and saw Barbara in that young, in that young uh, woman and said, enough is enough. Like, Noriega has crossed an important line here where he is assaulting, not just insulting, but assaulting our people and must be removed. And that was the final justification, I think, for, the, for going to war. And Jeff, I've always wondered, and this is not based on any research, but having worked at one point for Howard Baker, who you know supported the Panama Canal Treaties, um, as we move toward the year 2000, when that completely went into effect, did Bush feel a need to say, we still have the rights to, we still have the need to defend this canal now and even after that treaty is fully in effect? Is that, was that part of the calculation of seeing that that is still a role America is going to play treaty or no treaty? Yes, and thank you. You correct me. I, I had the chronology somewhat wrong. Carter had signed a treaty, I guess. To, to that, that's over. right. We had not necessarily handed over the path. Yeah. Um, so, but Panama was obviously on people's minds. But that question, who is going to be in charge? So uh, remember, Panama only comes into existence in the early 1900s because of American intervention. And subsequent Panamanian governments recognized two facts. The first is that the United States, because of the canal, is not going to countenance any disruption in this region. 
and because of the global trade, necessity for global trade. And secondly, that we make some good profit off it. So let's not kill the golden goose either. Noriega did both those things and threatened more. So I think in direct answer to your question, I think it's still a completely legitimate American national security interest to keep the Panama Canal Zone open and free for trade, much more so than other places where we perceive national interest around the world. And yet, only during Noriega's time is this really a problem. You know, that, that were we to feel threatened, we would, I think, have a better case to take action in Panama than we do in other places around the world where we do take action. And yet, Panamanians know this, and therefore it's not really a concern. Coming back to the domestic side, the economic slump that he was forced to deal with during his presidency. Very infamous quote, read my lips, no new taxes. What could he have done differently to help the economic mess? You know, that, I love the way you phrase that question, because in actuality, I think he did everything right in some ways, in that you know the economy was clearly on the downslope after Reagan, and the but it was perceived to be potentially a, a short, if violent, recession. In fact, I was just looking at some polling data for 1992, and you know, throughout 92, when asked what is the central problem that Americans face, throughout the entire year, including during uh, the aftermath of Iraq, et cetera, the answer is for more than 50% of Americans, it is the economy which stinks. And so clearly Bush was held responsible for a declining economy, which actually started to uptick in the third quarter of, of 91. But of course, that's too late for people to perceive it when they go to the ballots. The one thing Bush did, I think that was right, was to go back on his no new taxes pledge, right in the sense of it being good fiscal policy, and right in the sense of it being good economic policy. He negotiated a tax, new tax program with the House and Senate Democrats, which I would argue paved the way for the success of Bill Clinton's economy and paved the way for the success of the 90s by revitalizing the, the tax base. And remember, by the end of the 1990s, we actually believe it or not had a balanced budget. Uh, we actually had a surplus at one point, the way those two were However, he handled it politically awfully because he had tied his own hands by saying no new taxes. And then he had gone against that central pledge. And remember what I said before, that Republicans had always wondered whether he was a genuine conservative or just lip syncing. Uh, well, it turns out he, when push came to shove, you know, did the non-conservative, traditional conservative move, which was to raise taxes because it was a smart economic decision and therefore lost in the election, I would argue, because of that. That, you know, Republicans who had always been wary of him refused to come out to the polls in 92 to support a man who they thought they were always suspicious of and now our suspicions were proved true. One must remember, of course, this is helped along the way by people like Newt Gingrich who saw a political opportunity and lambasting the president uh, as being too middle of the road uh, and seeing an opportunity to make political hay for themselves. One other point, just to get under my good friend Alan's skin, Reagan, of course, is recalled as a tax cutter, entirely inaccurate if you look at the bulk of his administration. The Reagan administration actually overall raised taxes 13 times, but they were smart. They never raised taxes. They voted, they signed off on revenue enhancements, and people are much more willing to pay revenue enhancements than they are to pay taxes. George Bush had said no new taxes, and then a tax came, and they were calling it a tax. Political suicide. So we've talked a lot about events during his presidency. In your opinion, is there anything we've left out? Yeah. He actually was critical for a lot of environmental changes. Um, he was not the greenest president by 21st century standards, but he helped establish, I think, a lot of the pathways that led to better policies in subsequent administrations. Secondly, um, and I think 
this is clearly his most important domestic achievement. He promoted and signed the Americans with Disabilities Act, which has fundamentally transformed the physical layout and the opportunity layout of American society and was something which his administration was critical in making sure happened. And I think that, you know, if you think about ways in which Americans are impacted every day by federal policy, one could argue the Americans with Disabilities Act has a more day-to-day change on your life in a way that people obviously shouldn't appreciate because it becomes so obvious. The fact that every uh, sidewalk has a ramp at this point in America when it's constructed is because of George H.W. Bush. Things we don't see anymore that make life possible for 20%, 25% of Americans who have physical limitations are obvious to us. And that's a fundamental transformation of American society, which Bush signed off on. So talking about his loss. So he, as we said, he was a one-term president. His approval was at an all-time high of 86%. How did he lose the reelection bid? What, what were the, the huge factors? So you talked about the econ- economics a little bit, but are there other factors that, that you throw in there? Uh, I think there's three. There's three major factors. The first is the economy that, you know, we have only a relatively small data set of modern elections to work on, but the the information we have suggests that the second quarter economic numbers are actually the critical one during election year. And more importantly, the perception of the American people during the second quarter of how the economy is going. And the perception among the American people in the second quarter was that the economy was going quite poorly. And the president always takes responsibility for that, period, no matter who is in charge, uh, and no matter their policies. Secondly, he, as I mentioned before, did not inspire his Republican base, if you will, as we would say today, because he was not that true, true in the blood conservative. And thirdly, and I think this is actually perhaps the most critical element, in some ways he had done too good a job. He had managed this extraordinarily dangerous Cold War in such a fashion that in some ways he made it look easy. And you don't get credit for things that look easy. And you've also solved the problem for most Americans. So Americans in 1988 were much, much more concerned about foreign policy than they were in 92. I mean, look at 92. The Soviet Union is over. We've just won the Gulf War. People are talking about whether this is the end of history because democracies are so ascendant and they're talking about American hegemony. I guess that means we don't need a foreign policy president. And Bush was exactly that. He says repeatedly in his diary, boy, do I find domestic politics boring. Uh, Foreign policy is so much more interesting. And I think the American people perceive that. And we're ready for, at the end of the Cold War, for a person like Bill Clinton, who would be a generational shift, an ideological shift, and more importantly, um, just a different tone and recognition that the end of the Cold War is, is, is here. And wasn't it the Clinton campaign that said it's the economy stupid? So that, that complete focus on the domestic sphere. Yeah, and that's what voters cared about. I mean, there's no doubt about it. That you know, if, Again, I was just looking at this polling data. Less than 5% of Americans, when asked what was the most important issue in 1992 for our country, said foreign policy. So if you're a foreign policy guy, that's not a great environment for you to run on. Though, though all those factors, Jeff, I know contributed, but can't an argument be made that he still could have been successful if not for Mr. Ross Perot? An argument can be made, just not a right one. Um, <laughs> and again, here, here's a place where I would disagree with, with all of my research subjects and colleagues who worked for and with President Bush. It is an article of faith within the Bush 41 alumni community that Ross Perot cost us the election. 
I think the data doesn't show that in any way, shape, or form, mostly because the exit polls suggest that an overwhelming percentage, over 75% of people who voted for Ross Perot when asked who they would have voted for if Perot had not been there, said Bill Clinton. And for all the aforementioned reasons, I think Perot was able to muster steam for his campaign, largely because the Republican Party was already dissatisfied with Bush. Remember, this is a Republican Party that was splintering in ways that are familiar to us today, and that we... She, in 92, Bush faced a primary challenge from Pat Buchanan, uh, one of the most effective primary challenges we've ever seen against an incumbent in recent years. And that was a nationalist, economic and racial and social nationalist campaign. It might even go so far as say a white supremacist campaign is, is early born. And therefore, that demonstrates that people within the party thought they needed something else. The fact that people were willing to vote for Buchanan against Bush tells us that Republicans were not wholly satisfied with Bush. And if the country's not satisfied with the economy and Republicans are not satisfied with his sort of vigorous nationalistic leadership, he's got nowhere to turn electorally. And so I think he loses, honestly, without Ross Perot. Just Ross Perot makes it a much more interesting story. That makes a lot of sense, Jeff. I think, though, it's, it is interesting to look at the success Perot did have. And I've, I've been curious lately in terms of the, the rise of Donald Trump as president and kind of the outsider businessman coming in saying, I'm going to shake up the system. Do you see a line from that kind of pro-reform campaign to the election of Trump? I see a much stronger line between Pat Buchanan and the election of Trump. Really, if you look at his speeches in 92 and his rhetoric and slogans, not only did he say America first, make America great again, uh, which, by the way, is not unusual, Warren Harding said the same thing, Ronald Reagan said the same thing in 1980. That was his campaign slogan as well, make America great again. Uh, not only did Buchanan use those terms, but also basically spoke word for word what Donald Trump says. Now, I have to be careful about that because Buchanan is an extraordinarily eloquent man and a brilliant writer. Neither would I suggest of Donald Trump. So you have to sort of weigh the gold standard of the speech that Buchanan gave against the sub-gold standard of the speech that uh, Trump gives, but they're the same content. And I think that that's really a sign of the frustration that the white majority of Americans were feeling since the 1970s, that the country was moving away from them and that the country has moved so far away from them at this point. They were willing to put their lot with somebody who made their their cultural interests and their racial interests first. Happy can try to do that, but the time was not ripe. And Donald Trump has been successful at that. Let's wrap up this segment with another this or that question for both of you. What would you say is the biggest highlight of his presidency? Wrapping up the Cold War or executing the Gulf War? Well, I, uh, I know that, that Jeffrey's going to probably say the same thing I'm going to say, and that you have to give him credit for how he handled the end of the Cold War. As, as Jeff noted, uh, you know, so many times in the past, that type of change had, had come with major conflict. Uh, and I think uh, Bush showed a real mastery of that. So nothing, nothing against uh, the the handling of the Gulf War, but certainly his hand in the Cold War was masterful. I, I think that's right. I think that's exactly right. In fact, I would even say even more specifically, German unification mm-hmm. within yeah. the Cold War. Yeah. Remember, none of the major powers besides the United States were in favor of German unification. Yet Bush managed to cajole and or persuade each of them that it was a good idea. And 
The reason he did that, actually, just in real brief, is actually really essential. Bush believed that the United States needed to have a forward-deployed role in the world for stability. He believed that the lesson of the 20th century had been that Europeans like to go to war with each other, but they haven't since we decided to stay after 1945. So we got to stay. How do we stay? We have to have NATO survive, because that's our entry point. NATO can't survive without Germany within NATO. So Bush's bottom line in all of his negotiations was, I will support German unification if it stays in NATO. And of course it did. So I think that was the thing which I think he would look back and say that was the most proud moment. The Gulf War obviously was was a tremendous victory, but in, in many ways, and I don't mean to say this to denigrate those who served in the war by any stretch of imagination. The Gulf War in some ways feels in retrospect like uh, when Alabama plays a non-conference Division II team and some of its warm-up games in the beginning of the season. You know, it's a 75-2 victory. That's great. But it's not the same as being the Soviet Union. A quick break just to remind you who's behind this new show. The brand new National Museum of American Presidents is responsible for this podcast in cooperation with the Center for Presidential History. We'd really like to see your comments or questions about this episode or ideas for future episodes. On Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, just search American POTUS and we'll show up right there in the search results. Our last segment, let's talk about his post-presidency a little bit and his friendship and charity work with Bill Clinton. Kind of a tale of unlikely friends, but more specifically, what made Bush, who was as competitive as anyone, put this old nemesis aside and become so friendly with? I think there's two things that explain their, the Bush-Clinton relationship, uh, especially after, obviously, the year 2000. The first is fundamental to who George H.W. Bush was. He was a genuine public servant and a genuine patriotic public servant and genuinely believed in democracy. So when the people voted for someone else, he respected that. And he famously wrote Clinton a letter, as presidents have done since Reagan, leaving it in the Oval Office desk, that said, by the time you read this, you will be my president and I will be rooting for you because we all root for our president to succeed because that means America succeeds. So I think he did not have any personal, I mean, obviously he was bitter about losing the election uh, and that had been a somewhat nasty election from time to time, but he was able to see the big picture. He was able to be competitive and be a good sport. The second thing is, especially after 2000, Bill Clinton was really respectful of George H.W. Bush. And in many ways, remember he's the same age as George W. Bush, in many ways thought of him as a, the father figure that Clinton had never had. Clinton, of course, was looking for a father figure in many ways throughout his entire life because of his own personal tragedy. And was the fact that he was respectful of President Bush as a political leader, but also as an older statesman and gentleman meant a lot to President Bush. I'll give you a great example of this. When they were first cast by George W. Bush with doing charity work around the world, doing disaster relief. One of the places they were doing it was flying through Africa on a private jet through the night. And Bill, it was one bed, one private chamber in the, in the private jet. And Bill Clinton, of course, said, Mr. President, sir, you must have this. You know, I, you know, I would feel that terrible to have it. You know, you have it. And presidents usually get the private room, right? And that meant a lot to George H.W. Bush that this younger man had shown the proper respect and dignity in offering him the bed that he wanted. I also I always like to point out, Bill Clinton doesn't sleep. He wasn't going to go to bed anyway. He was going to be talking. So it's a win-win from his perspective, but he showed the right the right deference. And I, I know that that relationship continued with W. I know uh, when I was at the um, Bush Library in Dallas, 
that, that that there was a connection there. I remember one event in D.C. with the two of them together on stage. It was like a great comedy act, and and I remember uh, W. famously calling Clinton his brother from another mother. So there's there's definitely that that continued connection there. Yes, and and it's important to note that the Bush Foundation and the Clinton Foundation, George W. Bush Foundation and the Clinton Foundation, spearheaded a project that suddenly brought in the Johnson Foundation and the Bush Forty One Foundation right. to promote civility within leadership and they demonstrate that as well they disagree on almost every issue but respect each other and respect the fundamentals of democracy and with that i've realized i've been very deficient this whole podcast of not talking about the two bush libraries uh george hw bush library and in college station the george w bush library in in dallas and of course we're creating the national museum of american presidents here in knoxville that hopes to work with all those. So great places to go and to do research and visit museums and take part in the programs. So speaking of W, I can imagine the only thing more stressful than being president is watching your son being president. John Adams was the only other person to experience this, but I, I can't imagine the stress that 41 and Barbara, his mom, had during those eight years that W was president. Yeah, I think as parents, it must have been just awful. Um, I mean, we, we know it's awful because we have more data on it for children of presidents than their fathers and Sunday mothers are insulted in the press. I think it's got to be really awful when you're the person's mother or father. And clearly George W. Bush had a particularly stressful time in many ways of his presidency through no fault of his own and then subsequently through a lot of fault of his own. And one of the key questions, which I think is wonderful that we will never answer, is what was the actual mentoring that George H.W. Bush gave George W. Bush? Because there's only a few people in the world that W. could really turn to to say, what, is, what do you think? And, and talk as peers, hence his relationship with Clinton. So I had no idea what the actual level of advice given and taken and asked for was within that relationship, nor does anyone else, and nor will we ever. I used to say that the reason that they let me keep interviewing H.W. Bush up until the, you know his, his last days, was because I never asked him that question, that this was a private question. His relationship with his son was none of our business. Lightening it up a little bit, he seemed to do everything at full throttle, especially his birthday parachute jumps. Yeah, you know, he used to say, uh, you know, obviously as the number went up, he'd have to change the numbers, but he would say, you know, I've jumped out of four planes three times voluntarily. <laughs> uh, you know, referring obviously back to his wartime days. I don't see the allure. As near as I know, Barbara Bush didn't see the allure, but this was something that he got into and kept doing really until his final days. And was this to satisfy that kind of full throttle need that he had? You know, I think it may have been at first. I think for the last, and, and I don't know this for a fact, this is just my, my observation and trying to read the tea leaves. I think his last jump in particular, he did it because people told him not to. Uh, and, <laughs> Uh, you know, damn it, I'm the president. But there was there was kind of that element, uh, though a humble man, a good man, a, a gentleman in many ways, he was sometimes a kind of a badass. I mean, he if he got on a speedboat, it wasn't going slow, it was going fast, right? He had, it seemed like throughout his life, he had that need for a certain type of a, adrenaline push. I think that's absolutely true. He definitely, I mean, he was an alpha dog. Uh, he was captain of the baseball team at Yale. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a man who is used to being in charge. I'll tell you, I, I don't mean to tell much so many personal stories. I usually try to be a little bit more distant, but I've actually been missing H.W. Uh, Bush of late. The foundation has as well, in some ways, his gentle civility. So I'll tell you another personal story. One time I was out with him on the ski boat. 
just him and me and you know, she's good service. And we're tooling around and he's got these incredible engines. He's actually got engines on that boat that were basically twice the size they were ready for. <laughs> and Walker's Point is actually a peninsula, if you will, over with a big cliff on one side and a little bay. And tourists used to line up at the top of the cliff. There were places where buses would stop and people could take pictures. So we're coming in to, to the dock and Bush looks at me and says, watch this and guns the engine directly <laughs> towards the cliff. And we're going to die. And then at the last minute, it seemed to me, you know, he throws it in reverse, spins the wheel, makes a huge wake up onto the, um, onto the cliff. Everyone on the cliff applauds. It's a great moment. <laughs> uh, and, and I'm sitting there saying, you know, I don't want the headline to be former president dies in fiery crash. Random historian also killed. <laughs> a great game of scare the historian. I love that. That's awesome. It was. It worked very well. I was scared. <laughs> I like him even more now. <laughs> you know, W wrote a biography of his father, which is a really good. And, and, you know, I'm glad he did that because you don't often have that opportunity of a president talking about his president father. But he said, uh, speaking of those later in life parachute jumps that, Arnold Palmer, the great golfer, uh, had called H.W. a badass. And, you know, we've been talking a bit about that. Have you, have you heard that before? And is that is that a story you're familiar with? You know, I had not heard that particular story before, but it makes sense to me in the context of, in addition to being a remarkably nice man, in addition to being very competitive, uh, he was supremely confident, I would argue, in the way that can only come from a person who is born in the 1% and in the center of society. I like to say there's no club in America that George Bush couldn't have been a member of. He was not excluded anywhere. And therefore, he was able to do things in his presidency that deflected attention away from himself because he had confidence. You know, he was able to be quiet during the end of the Cold War rather than beating his chest and celebrating it as a victory. He was able to go back on his promise of no new taxes. He was able to put his own personal ego aside when the nation needed it. I dare say that's something that should be a requisite for presidents. So our final this or that, wrapping up the post-presidency, what was 41's most important legacy? Was it his ability to move on from defeat or his quiet determination to create positive change? Quiet determination. I'll have to go with that too. And I've read, I'm trying to remember this quote when he's elected president, finally, some quote he makes of, he can't wait to get in there and start doing good things, essentially. Right. He's he's yes, he's ready to go right. and, and play that positive role he's always wanted to play. Let's go ahead and wrap up this episode with our very own American POTUS quickfire Q&A. Alan and Jeff, I'll ask you both some quick questions about POTUS 41, and maybe you can defend your answers to each other. Sound good? Yeah, I'm ready. All right, step up to the podium. Here we go. Who was his favorite president? Dwight Eisenhower. You stole, you stole he my answer, yeah. Well, it happens to be true. Uh, he <laughs> saw him in person, and he models his, his way of, of having a confident, quiet leadership, and confident, quiet leadership mm -hmm. was modeled entirely after Eisenhower. What would you say is the proudest moment of his presidency? German unification. And I've read he stated uh, signing the Americans with Dis Disabilities Act. Well, That's a good politician's answer. Correct. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean that seriously. I mean, yeah, I think that, yeah. you know, he, he understood that that was something that was important to the American people. Yeah. Uh, the biggest do-over of his presidency. Oh, I think uh, if he had found a better way to finesse no new taxes, I think if he had not said no new taxes at the convention in '88, 
before he was president, uh, he had a much, much better chance of becoming a second-term president. I would say uh, losing the election. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would think. It's obvious answer. Uh, your favorite quote of his? In his inaugural address, he says, we know what works, freedom works. We know what's right, freedom's right. We know how to open the lives of citizens throughout the world through the light of indoor freedom, something along those lines. I love that line because it so embodies his confidence in America and also the optimism of the late 80s, early 90s, which unfortunately we don't share today. So the certainty of being able to say, we know the best system, period, is something that I wish I had the confidence of anything in my life to be that certain. Yeah, I can't beat that one. That's good. Yeah, that's pretty good. I, I, I know you shouldn't even try. Uh, best joke he ever told. I can't repeat it because he liked dirty jokes. <laughs> if you're going to cop but out, only, but only, so, only, only, only if ladies were not present. I will tell you this. When you're at the uh, George H.W. Bush Library in College Station, Texas, uh, if they still have it, the section there featuring Dana Carvey, is absolutely yeah. wonderful. So presidential humor, he went along with it, and uh, really tremendous uh, examples of that, that hu- humor of Carvey and how, how H.W. And, uh, embraced him, and I think they became friends, right? Yes. In fact, H.W. Uh, loved the impression, uh, thought it was hysterical, brought Dana Carvey in after they had lost the election in 92 to cheer up the White House. Oh. And they did a whole bunch of different practical jokes on people, including including the two of them were in the Oval Office. And Bush said, you know, why don't we call down to the Situation Room and you talk to them uh, and, see how long it, and see how long it takes. Just, <laughs> Apparently, they never, they never clued in. I don't, I don't know how prudent that was, but yeah. <laughs> no, that's great. You're just asking what, how the, what the weather's like. It's not so bad. <laughs> right, right, right. What other politicians did he get along with? Name some politicians that... That he'd liked. Uh, I'm actually having trouble finding politicians he didn't yeah. like. Newt Gingrich is number one on yes. the list. I would focus more on that, that Bush was able to work with people, and even those people he disagreed with, he could have dinner with or a drink with or play golf with. And some might say that's one of the problems in Washington, that the two parties are too close. I'm not one of those people. I think civility matters, and Bush exemplified it. Absolutely, civility matters. Some great photos I saw preparing for today of him it's laughing uproariously with Tip O'Neill and others. I know he uh, thought very highly of Howard Baker and vice versa. So there was a, he had so many great uh, friendships and partnerships across party lines and really stressed the importance of civility, of actually serving the people and trying to get things done. So he worked with both Nixon and Reagan. Who did he learn the most from, good or bad? Well, it has to be Reagan, of course, but uh, go ahead, Jeffrey. Uh, I might just—I might choose the opposite. What's interesting about the question is I think he learned a tremendous amount from both men, but was not able for different reasons to implement those lessons. I think he learned from Nixon how to be a Machiavellian bureaucratic tyrant and did not want to do that when he was president. And he learned from Reagan how to be the greatest communicator that the White House has ever seen and knew he was never going to be that. So he famously hated broccoli. Why did he hate broccoli so much? I think he's not unusual in that regard. Uh, <laughs> among the well, I think the answer is he just didn't put enough butter and cheese on it. Anything's good with uh, enough butter and cheese. I do recall one time in particular, one of his aides 
turning to me and said, you're not going to believe it, but the president had broccoli soup last night because he didn't know it was broccoli. Uh, <laughs> he didn't like it, but he had it. <laughs> Fan of country, pop, or classical music? Oh, country. Definitely country. country. Yeah, and he loved the Oak Ridge Boys, if I remember correctly. What was his favorite candy? So I got to tell you, I did some research on this because I did not, I thought you were going to ask this question. I did not know it. So I called up his chief of staff from his post-presidential days who told me uh, he had no favorite candy. He did not like sweets, but he loved ice cream. He could not get enough ice cream, especially vanilla with caramel on top. Ah. And he liked pork rinds too, right? Wasn't that a big thing? I think he, he ate those on the campaign trail and pork rind sales went way chosen, up. Yeah, right. Chosen junk food. <laughs> I have to suspect that his consumption of pork rinds went way down when the campaigns broke. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> was he a drinker? What was his go-to drink? Vodka tonic. Favorite sport? I know he played baseball. He loved to fish. What, what would you say his favorite sport was? I think, honestly, and I respect this so much, I think his favorite sport was whatever was on. He loved competition. <laughs> and you know, he, he knew every sport. He loved every sport. And he obviously had a great affection for baseball, being a former baseball player. But um, he really just loved the idea of good-spirited, gentlemanly competition. There's a great photo of him during the College World Series playing for Yale um, on the pitcher's mound, if I remember correctly, with Babe Ruth. Isn't that correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, right, right, actually, right before Babe Ruth's death. He was the captain of the team. So he was and, – and, he epitomized, by the way, during his baseball career, the old, you know, adage, good field, no hit, that he was an extraordinary fielder. He's also very tall, good lefty, first baseman. Well, he was basically a 200 hitter. Lived, lived his life just above the Mendoza line, as they say. And he was such a leader that there was no thought of ever taking him off the field because the team wouldn't function without him, even if he was not a slugging first baseman. And he always kept a baseball glove in the desk, isn't that right? Yes. Yeah. Oiled, ready to go. <laughs> Moments notice. Favorite hobby? Being president. Uh, <laughs> I I think uh, yeah I think he loved being. I am hard pressed to find someone who, until he became ill, enjoyed his post presidency more. I think he really liked moving at the top echelons of the world and not having to any longer bear the responsibility. Yeah. As uh, is usual, my answer is much less substantial. Uh, horseshoes. Didn't he love to play horseshoes? That was a hobby as well. Uh, he did play horseshoes. Fact, <laughs> but yours was better. Gorbat- <laughs> That's true. Uh, when, he in- <laughs> when he invited Mikhail Gorbachev to play horseshoes at Camp David, and Gorbachev had never played horseshoes before, why would they, they couldn't afford extra horseshoes? And so when he was growing up, Gorbachev threw a ringer on his first try. <laughs> and Bush wisely said, you know, this is a sign that this, this relationship is going to work. <laughs> uh, he used it to his advantage. All right. Our, my final question his most impressive skill that had nothing to do with the presidency. You know, he was such a political creature his entire life that I'm having trouble because the answer I want to keep coming back to, the thing that most amazes me about him as a person is his insatiable energy for writing notes to people. He would write notes for hours at a time. I like to say that one of the reasons that he was able to write those notes is because he didn't have to address the envelope most of the time, so it takes half the time. But he, every night, would go through his day and write notes to people who had, you know, impacted him or needed to cheer him up or whatnot. I mean, one one of my favorite from all the best is when they had in the old guard, colonial era troop brigade from uh, Arlington Cemetery that does a lot of um, ceremonial work uh, for parades and and so on during in Washington, D.C. And one of the soldiers during one of the drills dropped his rifle and Bush wrote this guy a long note about how 
we all drop our rifle from time to time. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, you know, don't feel bad. I mean, I'm sure you're embarrassed. And I'm sure your friends are making fun of you. But you know what? Let me tell you all the mistakes I've made. And, you know, think about this 19-year-old getting a letter from the President of the United States about something as human and as important as dropping something is, is yeah. just really speaks to his humanity. Jeff, thank you for all the insight into this true American statesman. We really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Jeff. Well, thank you, guys. I'm, I'm really enthused about everything that the Museum of the President is going to do. The American POTUS podcast is produced by the National Museum of American Presidents in cooperation with the Center for Presidential History, located at Southern Methodist University. Graphic designed by the Thought Bureau. An original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. A friendly reminder to like us on social media. Just search American POTUS and we'll show up there in the search results. We'd like to hear what you think about the episodes and any thoughts you might have for future podcasts. Finally, we like to let our presidents have the last word, so we leave you with one of George Bush's most prophetic thoughts. I do not mistrust the future. I do not fear what is ahead, for our problems are large, but our heart is larger.